Living for you and under your lordship in the meantime is our task, it is our goal, it is our desire. And we ask that even as we open up your word this morning that you would instruct us, that you would by your spirit teach us, that we might be faithful citizens of the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of man. And it is to this end that we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as I introduce our passage this morning, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13. It's always interesting to see God's providence uh, in, uh, in what we look at together in Scripture. This was a plan to take this Sunday anyway to uh, consider uh, Romans, well, particularly this passage, but uh, an understanding, a Christian understanding of the relationship of government and civil authority. Now, we've covered this in the past, if you remember, when we looked at 1 Peter, and we covered it in more detail in 1 Peter, more than we're going to get into this morning. You can go back and listen to those messages. Uh, there's three of them in 1 Peter chapter 2. But we are going to take a break. We're going to pull the car over, as it were, to look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And I say God's providence is interesting because uh, we find ourselves in a moment, culturally and historically, in our society and our nation, where these truths need to be uh, brought to our attention again. And, and we need to consider together how to think through them and how to apply God's will for our life. Uh, in the circumstances that we find ourselves. And Romans 13 is written uh, just for that purpose, not merely for us, but for the church throughout the ages, certainly the church to whom he was writing, the church in Rome, who found themselves in very difficult situation. They found themselves in times of persecution, both that had come, that would come, and that they would have to use biblical wisdom and to learn how to navigate. And so that is the title of this message, Navigating Civil Authority and Christian Obedience. Navigating that relationship of the authority that God has given to the state and our ultimate obedience to Christ, who is Lord over all. So let's just jump into it this morning. We'll begin by reading the passage, and then we'll... Look at it a bit more closely. So if you would, read with me in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Rendering to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. One of the most central passages and teachings in all of Scripture about our topic, namely an understanding of civil authority and how Christians are to live under the authority of the king, as it were, while 
serving and living as slaves and obedient children of God and of the Lord of heaven and earth. Now just briefly, why does Paul give this passage to the Romans? It's chapter 13, obviously coming after the first 12 chapters. Paul has spent 11 chapters giving a comprehensive overview of the gospel that is proclaimed, a, a reality of Christ in his coming, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately what that means in terms of God establishing his kingdom at the end of the age. In chapter 12, he begins applying these glorious truths to the church. And here we find ourselves in chapter 13, right at the beginning of that application, with a word about a Christian's relationship to civil authority. In one sense, you could see, uh, and I don't think this is the main connection, but there's a certain connection with the end of chapter 12, where he had just instructed the church not to take vengeance on their own, but to leave room for the wrath of God. He's going to pick up that idea in this section in verses 1 through 7, identifying the civil authority as an instrument in the hand of God to execute his wrath here on earth. And so there is a connection there. There's certainly a connection in the large context of how to live for God and how to live for Christ in, in a political situation that is hostile to him. Certainly there were Jews and there were Gentiles uh, among those to whom Paul was writing. Whether it was mostly Jews or Gentiles is another discussion. But they certainly were both there and made up the church. The Jews had a long history of animosity towards the government of Rome. Eventually that was going to leave into the Jewish rebellion. 70 AD and the destruction, or it began in the 60s, but the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because of this hostility. And so there is, even within Jews, within the church, that kind of fomenting resistance to some of Roman authority. And there's certainly an element where he was addressing that. The Gentiles weren't absent of that kind of animosity at times to the Roman authority as well. So this instruction is important to the church, to those whom he's writing, who would have needed to understand how are we to live in in light of persecution, in light of this wicked system of Rome, as Christians who have committed our lives completely to Christ. And so we can see, even just in that general context, that it relates to us as well. Because in a general sense, in a large sense, that's where Christians often find themselves throughout the history of the world, even today. In America, increasingly so, and outside of America, always, of course. But let's just consider this and... I'm going to try to, I want to finish this all in one message, so I'm going to try to do that and give us just a broad context. We're not going to go into every detail, not as much as I would like to, but uh, hopefully enough to give us some instruction and to set for us a context for how we are to live. And particularly, this is the question that's on people's mind, both for ourselves in light of what we see happening politically in our nation and even in light of recent events where we see as many of us uh, are aware, if not most, of the kind of stand that was taken in California by Grace Community Church. So we want to think about these things together. So let's look first then at the command. We're going to break this up into two broad categories. One, the command that we are to obey civil authority, and then our confidence, which is ultimately the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. Let's look first at the command. The command to obey civil authority. And in looking at this command, which begins this session, and we're going to look at four reasons why Christians are to obey civil authorities, civil institutions. Four reasons. The very first one is that it is the will of God. It is the will of God. 
Look at what he says in verse 1. Every person, you could say every soul, suke is the word there. The idea is, is the entirety of the person is to live in subjection to the governing authorities. I'm certainly not going to defend this, but just so you might hear it sometimes, some want to see these as spiritual authorities and powers. It's not speaking here about human rulers, human rulers. It is a command given to the church in Scripture as a revelation of God's will. It's His will for us. It's a comprehensive statement. It applies to every person under every situation and ever under every form of government. The will of God is that we are in subjection to governing authorities. This then establishes the basic attitude and the basic position or posture of how Christian then is to relate to civil authority. This is the, the basic disposition, the basic way that we view civil authority and our responsibility to it. We are to be in subjection to it. The idea of being in subjection here is that we are to voluntarily bring ourselves into compliance with its legitimate laws and authority. This, of course, does not mean absolute obedience without question. The obedience and submission offered to human authorities is already established as itself being under the lordship of Christ, who has all authority in heaven and in earth. But nonetheless, it is recognized that the church is to live with a compliant, submissive attitude to human authority, civil authority. And this submission is ultimately not based on something inherent or some inherent right within human authority. It is ultimately a recognition of God's ultimate authority and his ability to command us to do his will. We'll look at this more at the end. I'll just note here, for context, whenever human authority oversteps its bounds as a creaturely thing, and interestingly, if you'll remember back in 1 Peter 2, we looked at, that's the language he actually uses, every human insta uh, creation. In other words, those things that are for man and are mediated through man is the idea there. Whenever human authority oversteps its bounds as a creaturely thing and it tries to force or legislate disobedience to God, then of course our obedience is still to God. Ultimately, and human authority must be put aside. It must be neglected in order to obey the will of God. Again, just for clarity here, human authority or governing authority here, which is the best translation, uh, I think, and the most common. Uh, again, it refers here to whatever civil authority that the Christian lives under. And a civil authority is simply that authority that belongs to those who are entrusted with both the responsibility and the ability to provide and to protect for a people, for a, for a nation, for a society. Those who are put in place to fulfill that role. To say the ability to do that implies authority as well. It necessarily entails laws and the ability to enforce those laws. And just as a very general comment that will come out as we look through some of the reasons for our obedience here is a question, and again, we addressed this before. I'm just going to mention it here when we look at 1 Peter, is what is the nature of government? Would government have existed if the fall never had happened? And the answer to that is yes, government would have existed. 
And the basis for that is the creation mandate. And, and the way that this is, I think, helpfully broken up often in discussion is to say that there's an organizational element to government, that's the idea of provision, and there's a coercive element to government, that's the idea of enforcement of laws and those type of things. In the creation mandate, God told Adam as the head of humanity to, and then also this instruction went through Adam to Eve, to rule over creation and to bring it into subjection. And the natural development of humanity in order to do that efficiently would have had some kind of organizational structure to it that itself reflects the image of God in man. God himself as a trinity has the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who live in harmony and in very specific roles. You see specific roles of submission even within the creation mandate of man not only over creation but the husband over the wife as in a, in a position of leading and ultimately man under the authority of God who himself has a hierarchical relationship, that might be a dangerous way to say it, but within their, their own unity as Father, Son, and Spirit. So in other words, the idea of order, the idea of organization is a natural outflow of being made in the image of God, being commissioned with the command to bring all of creation into submission to man's rule as God's vice-regent. But it does not take long, of course, before sin to enter into the rule, and this idea of government needs to take on another aspect. And we'll look at this again later here. I'm only going to mention it. And that is in Genesis 9-6. After the flood, God told Noah that if man's blood is shed by another man, then there is the right for that perpetrator's life to be taken from him. And here is what's seen pretty universally as the beginning of a coercive kind of government, a kind of legislative body among men that enforces laws that is for the protection of humanity. Now we'll look at that again later. But I want to know first here, the first point, very simply, and we won't we won't be balanced necessarily on these points. So this one's a little shorter. But just to note this, that to be in subjection to civil authority is the will of God. It is the will of God, as established in the opening statement. Secondly is this, is it is the will of God because it is also established by God. The second part of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And this really is the foundation of the rationale for the whole command, the whole section. It is a recognition that God is the ultimate source of all authority. He is the ultimate source of all civil authority, all authority among men. Ultimately, anybody who is in power now or throughout the history of the world or who will be in power has that position and has that position that with it has a certain authority because God has by his sovereign will granted it to them. He has by his sovereign will granted it to them. God appointed them. This is, to the Jewish mindset, particularly common in their understanding of the rulers God has set over them, both outside of them as a nation, particularly when they, after the return from the exile, were always under the authority of some Gentile nation. And even before, after the monarchy was established in Israel, they understood their king was appointed by God. They understood that authority comes from God. It could come from no other place. Let me, let me just illustrate this for you uh, in the book of Daniel. 
the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel, if you'll remember the context of Daniel, is a time of exile. Daniel was one of the first waves of people to be taken out of Jerusalem into Babylon as a part of God's judgment that happened in three phases. Daniel was a part of this third phase. So this is before the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, which would come later. But here is Daniel in the nation of Babylon, a pagan nation. And you know the story given uh, they're brought there in attaining to a high position uh, within this nation. He provides for us a, an illustration of both how, how the Jews understood the authority that they were placed under and how they were to relate to this authority. So in chapter 2, Daniel says this after being given a, an answer for a dream by God. He says this in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And listen to what he says. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed, verse 20, forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him, verse 21. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He understood that where he was at that moment in history, under the authority of the king Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a righteous person, was because of God's appointment, God's establishment. He knew that even this great Gentile king, this powerful Gentile king, was ultimately under the sovereign purposes of God and played only a temporary role. In verse 44 of chapter 2, looking forward to this future kingdom, he says, In the days of those kings, after establishing what was going to happen in the course of human events, he says, In the days of those kings, God of heaven will, so the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So he understood himself as being under the authority, the auspices, the rule of the ultimate king, God, who would establish his kingdom, but in the meantime, under the rule of an evil king whom God had appointed to have an earthly kingdom to which he was to live under and to submit. Now later, God would teach this to even that pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4. You're familiar with these verses. After God had a time of humbling Nebuchadnezzar, whose heart was lifted up in pride, Nebuchadnezzar says this, it's reported in Daniel 4.34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand." Now, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar came to that after a humbling activity of God in his life because Nebuchadnezzar had wrongly boasted that his kingdom was a result of his power. And God was reminding him that, no, you are king and you have your position because I have appointed you to be so to fulfill my will. So this is, again, a settled understanding of where authority comes from. It comes from God. Authority is established by God. It is for this reason in Romans 13, 
that Paul could say that in verse 4, it, meaning this governing authority, the civil authority, is a minister of God for you. It is a minister of God. It is a servant of God. Diakonos is the term there. It is, it is one to do God's will, to fulfill his will among men on earth. And this means then that even those kings who do not acknowledge the authority of God and the rightfulness of his role as creator, the one to be obeyed, are yet fulfilling God's will. Let me give you just one example of this. Nebuchadnezzar's example, but let me give you one even more, or just as explicit. In Isaiah chapter 44, okay, again, God is now addressing uh, people whom are going to be brought back into the land after their exile. The instrument of God to do that is the king of Persia, namely by the name of Cyrus. Now, God is writing this over a century before he is to rise to power, and yet he says in verse 28 of Isaiah 44, and it's this kind of clarity and specificity that causes liberal scholars to say that these were things written after the fact. It is, in fact, a prophetic word written by Isaiah in the 8th century that is anticipating and foretelling what God will do. Verse 28, it is I, who this is God speaking, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. Cyrus is a pleasing king of Persia. He is my shepherd, and what will Cyrus do as God's shepherd? It says, he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. In other words, at the end of the exile, God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, to be the human instrument who would facilitate the coming back into the land of the nation of Israel. He's God's servant. He is raised up to do God's will. And so here, that is applied in our passage more generally to government. Government is a servant of God. Now, in one sense, this is most near to God's intention when the authority is exercised in line with God's moral absolutes, God's righteousness. But again, in another sense, it includes the reality that even evil governments have their existence by the sovereign will of God. This includes Babylon, includes Caesar. Yes, if you're thinking, it includes Hitler and others who, though ultimately did much evil, nonetheless attained that position because God had ultimately ordained it. There is no qualification on this. As a matter of fact... And we'll come back to this later. Even in the final kingdom of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, the rise of the Antichrist and the mayhem and the death and destruction that he will bring on the world is stated to be by the sovereign purposes of God for a time which he himself has ordained. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. Revelation 13. He says in verse 5, there was given to him, the given to him, the giver, here in this context is clearly God. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy, and listen, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. The limit of the authority, again, accentuates the fact that it is God who gave authority. He said, you will have it, you will have it for this period of time, and at the end of that time it will come to an end. He'd already intimated that earlier in Revelation 
when he had told one of the churches that you're going to suffer, but he limited the amount of time at which they were going to suffer. Here he says, even this rise of the Antichrist is by an authority that was given to him. In verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints, with his own people, to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. By who? By God. This is a part of the purposes of God. It was given to him, this is even speaking of the false prophet in verse 15. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the beast, the Im- worship the image of the beast to be killed. So although we are going to, as we go through this, navigate how then does that work with the Christian's obedience and attitude towards civil authority, it does establish at the very beginning that we understand that all authority is by the sovereign ordinance of God. The sovereign ordinance of God. And so our civil, view of civil authority must begin with this reality. It must begin with this reality. Now the issue of revolution and even our own, the beginning of our own nation in which there are different positions is not, is not specifically in view here. He's simply establishing how we are by a Christian worldview to understand the world in which we live and the authority we live under. Now we as Americans can be thankful that our own declaration of independence, our own founding document recognizes this, but in a true sense, in a good sense. We know these words, familiar, these are familiar words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While certainly not a Christian nation, a Christian worldview, and that's in the broadest possible sense of a Christian but a Christian worldview dominated the understanding and the perception of who we were as a nation. It established the very way that our government is organized in three branches was not only a politically expedient to prevent the rise of relegating power just in one person or office, i.e. the monarchy, it was also a recognition of human depravity to realize there needed to be a balancing effect. And so our nation was founded on this very idea even that God is the one who is ultimately over every nation and every nation and every political authority receives its position by God's providence and God's providence alone. So although we see a shifting from this understanding in our own culture, we have enjoyed the uniqueness of our nation's foundations and guiding principle. They, they are, however, beneficial to us only insofar as it begins with this recognition. That authority exists because of God's sovereign providence and will, not because of humanity. It does not reside within humanity's will, ultimately, but in God's will. And as long as that's understood, there is a profit to a nation when that is forgotten, as even the writers of our own nation understood that the Constitution that we live under is only as good as the degree that we recognize God as the ultimate foundation of it in terms of authority, in terms of authority. Now, there are times when this includes the persecution of his people, as already noted. However, the point of the passage is to note that even in unrighteous governments and leaders, God actually still works good for humanity. 
In the general flow of human existence, God works good for humanity through government. And so here's, here's the th- third reason to obey. One, it's God's will. Two, it's established by God. And number three, it benefits humanity. I'm going to have to go a little quicker than I wanted to to this point, but this will be a, a bit of a longer point in, in dealing with uh, what Paul says here and the rest. But the third reason is because it benefits humanity. Government was given for and established, this authority is established by God for the benefit of humanity. Look at me just briefly with me at verses 3 through 4 and then verse 6. We'll come back to verse 5 on the, uh, on the fourth motivation or fourth reason to obey. But verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good but if you do what is evil be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very, excuse me, this very thing, this very thing. So what is under, in what ways is it a benefit to humanity? In what ways is it a benefit to humanity? Let me list to you at least three, at least three. And the first is this, it limits evil. It limits evil. Human authority, civil authority, limits evil. It limits the effects of the fall. It limits the effects of the fall. It is ultimately used, as Paul says here, as a minister of God to express his own judgment against sin. His own judgment against sin and promote what is good and promote universal anarchy. As a matter of fact... We have a slide, we have an example of what unmitigated free run of human sin on humanity will bring, and it's in those very opening chapters of Genesis chapter 6. He says in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon earth. It was filled with violence and corruption and wanton expressions of sin. Now the heart of man is at the same after the flood. As I noted before, it was after the flood that God said, look, the, the, the heart of man is the same. Even after he wiped out all of humanity, save Noah and his family, he brought them through the flood to reestablish humanity on earth. And yet... Not as Adam in his first state without sin, but through Noah and his family carrying with them the reality of a fallen nature of sin. But he says this. He says this in chapter 9. Recognizing the wanton violence that is still going to come upon the experience of man, he now institutes, and this is what we noted before, a way to deal with this wanton violence and this a darkest spread of human sin. He says in verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, of Genesis 9, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. And it's only by that kind of limiting structure, that kind of limiting command, that there can be some containing of the natural tendency of man towards violence and towards destruction. 
some limiting of the effects of the corruption of man's heart and the way that it would self-destruct or bring again the destruction of God, which ultimately it will. And so this is, an, in essence, the very divine ordain of what Paul mentions in Romans 13 of civil authorities' right to bear the sword, to bear a threat against evil and the rise of evil. And this bearing of the sword then limits the free reign of corruption and of sin and of violence among men. And it is ordained so by God. We can see a more structured evidence of this within the Mosaic law itself, which included penalties for crimes and ultimately the penalty of capital punishment and death for certain crimes that he gave to his people and how they were to live in this world. So now the truest expression then of this function of government, because this, this automatically raises questions, who decides what is good? Who decides what is evil? Right? Now the truest expression then of this function of government is ultimately only demonstrated when the laws of a land are most in line with righteous behavior. Ultimately this is revealed in scripture, but many civil authorities and governments have reflected a basic kind of morality that reflects common grace throughout the history of the world. Believe it or not. As a matter of fact, Paul already alluded to this part in beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 2, let me just read it to you, you'll remember it, he says this, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that in that case it is the Mosaic law, do instinctively the things of the law, in other words, perform certain elements of righteousness that cohere, that are in conformity with a righteousness that is revealed even supernaturally to Moses on Mount Sinai, when they do that, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day according to my gospel when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Point here is this, is that man, though the image of God is distorted, still has the vestiges of that image within him that informs him broadly with basic sense of morality, of right and wrong, as corrupted as that is and perverted as that gets worked out throughout the history of man, there is still a basic sense within man of right and wrong. And that basic sense of in man that comes through conscience becomes then a foundation through common grace of the establishment of laws throughout the history of man that do reflect in some ways God's righteousness, that do reflect good. As a matter of fact, just one example of this you might find interesting. One, one of the most common examples of this, some of you may have heard of the Code of Hammurabi. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yep, good. There it is. A lot of you. So, so you understand, that's an 18th century discovery of codes. Hammurabi was a king in Babylon, and part of his rule uh, was marked by this list of principles, which were essentially principles that established uh, adjust how justly they how they would live as a just nation and as a just people, and there are some laws even within this code or principles even within this code that are reflected in the Mosaic Law. Even 
such as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and other things like that. The treatment of slaves, the treatment of animals that gore uh, an individual and those kind of things that we see in the Mosaic law are actually reflected, uh, reflected and predated even in this document by a pagan king of Babylon. As a matter of fact, he begins that document, the uh, Hammurabi, with this. At that time, An and Enil, for the well-being of the people, called me by name, that is Hammurabi, the pious, God-fearing prince, to make justice appear in the land, to destroy the evil and the wicked, so that the, so that the strong might not oppress the weak, to rise like Shamash over the dark-haired people, people of Mesopotamia, to give light to the land. So the point here is this, while the fullness of this, that they are a rewarder of good behavior and a punisher of those who do evil is ultimately only rightly administered in conformity to what God has revealed as righteousness, there's an element of that righteousness that exists still within man, in other words, in sense of a moral consciousness, that has formed laws that have ultimately proved for the good of people throughout the history of man. It, is, it has withheld, it has limited the natural corruption and push toward evil and violence of humanity. We are not in pre-flood conditions. That's not the story of man. It's not. Now, although this law of Hammurabi did not have the profound uniqueness of the Mosaic law and its basic idea of covenant, its view of God and the purpose and motivation of the law, and particularly in relation to the redemption of God and the tabernacle and so forth. It, wasn't, it doesn't compare with it in that way. But it is an example to say there is a common sense in, of uh, morality, of good and evil within humanity is a reflection of a conscience that still bears vestiges of the image of God. Paul referenced that in Romans 2. That has worked for the good of man by limiting evil. By limiting evil. And so for that, we can be thinking, thankful. In our own nation, to make this more personal to us this morning, we have enjoyed a system of laws that were established on a basic, fundamental Judeo-Christian worldview. Not everybody was a Christian. Many of them were. But even those who weren't had a basic sense of God who established all things and that we lived under authority that was higher than man. In its most basic sense, that was what formed the foundation of our nation and its laws, and there were in these laws reflected a desire to uphold righteousness. Most of its history has upheld the rightness of marriage, has upheld a kind of sexual fidelity and morality, has upheld personal responsibility, has upheld the importance of family, of personal freedoms. Our laws have upheld that. America is unique in many ways among the nations because of that. And we obviously have seen an eroding of this throughout time. And the execution of these principles, as good as they are, have been inconsistent and imperfect throughout our history. Nobody uh, denies that. But the basic principles of our civil identity and nation have provided within our political structure and the structure of our civil authority a way to be self-correcting because of the principles themselves, namely that each of every human being has certain inalienable rights, endowed to them by a creator. And that's not been lived out perfectly 
But because that was a basic tenet of the walls, there is a self-correcting element even within our government. And we've experienced the benefit of that. So we've had times of internal war, of abuse, slavery would be one of those. But these are things that, because again of those principles, we're able to be, in the big picture, self-correcting. Self-correcting. And there's been a tendency to right previous wrongs throughout the history of our nation. And so we can be thankful to God for that. We can be thankful to God for that. Even in sinful and ungodly governments, however, that don't have that basic foundational principles, there's this, uh, this task of limiting evil is still evident. One said this, governments, even oppressive governments, by their very nature, seek to prevent the evils of indiscriminate murder, riot, thievery, as well as general instability and chaos, and good acts do at time meet with its approval and praise, even in corrupt governments, even in corrupt governments. So that is the reason, then, that Paul again can say that it has been invested with the power of the sword by God, with the authority to punish sin, and as such is a minister of God, he says at the end of verse 4, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And interestingly here, the wrath that he speaks of is directly, is immediately the wrath of civil authority. As a minister of God, however, even that wrath that comes through civil authority through the natural punishment laws is a reflection of God's own wrath and ultimately a picture of God's ultimate wrath that is to come at the end of the age. But the point here is that government enforces its laws, it maintains peace, and it executes justice for humanity. Now, part of the reason to do this message in the first place was because of the wanton attack that we've seen on the police officers of our nation. Defund the police, blaming them for every evil under the sun and every societal woe, as if responsibility does not bear on anyone else. That's why we wanted to give an expression of gratitude to our police department here. Would that we could do that to every police department around the nation. But to say that we respect them and we, we recognize their role in society as good for humanity and as a reflection of God's will for us. We are better because of them. We are safer because of them. As a matter of fact, while ways to execute justice have existed uh, throughout the history of the world and even in our nation, in some ways it was largely voluntarily, voluntary and uh, there were some for-profit, even private uh, ways to address uh, uh, unrest in the nation going back to the 1600s. But in the United States, uh, it was in 1838 was the first publicly funded organized police force with officers on full-time duty. And it was in Boston. In New York City, city it was later 1845 and several other cities followed uh, after that in the decade after that. And it was, it was established because of the inadequacy of other means of dealing with riots and violence and murder and lawlessness within, particularly as cities and urban areas begin to grow. There was a need to somehow address that for the safety and protection of the citizens, and thus we have the police department. Now, like everything else, there was a... The police are a part of God's, well, a part of God's common grace to man. That role is fulfilled ultimately in as much as held to the same standard of righteousness and integrity as anyone else, particularly those over whom they are assigned to protect or who they are assigned to protect. 
And where there is injustice and where there is sin, that is something that needs to be dealt with. But as an institution, that has largely been the exception and not the rule. The rule is dramatically so that God has given to us such organizations as the police to defend and to protect us and who are just as much as any other rulers as here worthy of our honor and reverence and gratitude and fear and should be treated such. It fulfills God's purposes on earth. That's one. Let me go to a second here. Human government provides for human flourishing and for the gospel. Human, this, this, bene, this is a way, the second reason it benefits man. First is it limits evil. It limits evil, and then with that promotes what is good. This goes more with the promotes what is good. It provides for human flourishing and the gospel. It provides for human flourishing and the gospel. This would go more and emphasize that the organizational element of government and how it provides for its people and for others, but in the conditions of the fall, even that is not absence from its ability also to display might, display a, a sort of retributive might, the ability to address evil, the ability to protect from evil by a display of that might. We often hear as a political dogma within our own nation in terms of international law that how do we prevent war by a show of strength, right? We prevent war. There's a more typical name that's escaping me right now. But that's the idea. You express strength and military might, the ability to wield the sword so that you don't have to wield the sword is the idea. So that you don't have to do it. It's a means of protection. But there are a variety of ways in which God uses government in the promotion of what is good as well. One, and just mentioned here, we might even take this for granted, but he, he says here in verse 6, that because of this, you also pay taxes. You also pay taxes. And he mentioned again in verse 7, two forms of tax. Tax to whom tax is due and custom to whom custom is due. Both of those are forms of taxation. Why? Because as we pay taxes to the government, to civil authorities, it provides for us services that we could not provide on our own. And so it's right to do that. Now remember, when we say this... There was obviously some tension even within those who, to whom Paul was writing because the Jews, we all remember in Matthew 22, had, you know, who are we to pay taxes to Caesar? Look at this idolatrous image on there. And what did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give God to what is God's. In other words, there's a rightness of paying these taxes. There's a rightness. Now, that money that was given to the Roman government was not used for all righteous purposes, was it? There were sin and wrong things within Roman government and Roman society. And yet, God acknowledges that. It's, it's, God is not ignorant of that. But says it's still right to pay taxes. There is still a function that government and a role that government plays in the lives of society from which you benefit. Aside from the evil, there is also a good that it provides. It provides for you, well, one is a kind of protection, freedoms. It provides for you public works. And other things that enable you to live life and to flourish. Now, I don't have time to go into this. I actually have more than I mentioned because we want to get to the end. But even the mere fact, just, a, just a, one example of this, is Roman roads. 
When Rome came into power, they both created roads and rebuilt roads and repaired roads throughout the empire that was this vast. As a matter of fact, one noted this, that a total of over 50,000 miles of first-class highways and about 200,000 miles of lesser roads were throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. What did that do? That provided for not only commerce and those type of things, it also provided for the spread of the gospel. How was Paul able to travel from one main city to another main city throughout Asia Minor and through that? Because there were roads there. Why were the roads there? Because Rome built those roads. How did Rome build those roads? Through the taxes of the citizens. How did, were, were travel protected on those roads? It was through the Roman military. Paul said sometimes he was in danger of thieves and robbers, and because there were more remote parts of those roads uh, that were dangerous. But as you got closer to the city, there was a military presence, and those were much safer areas to travel and to move about. And that allowed Paul a kind of freedom to do that, and other Christians as well. As when they migrated to different areas, the gospel went with them, and gospel spread. Why? This happened largely because of Rome, and not only the Roman roads, but you've heard of this, the Peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana. In other words, Rome had such might, it had such strength, it had such presence, that it had the ability to ensure the safety of many of its travelers as they went about. Why is that? That's because it bore the sword. And it bore a powerful, it bore a powerful sword. You didn't want to go against Rome. So again, this is just ways in which God established government for the good, not only of the human flourishing, but also for the spread of the gospel. Thirdly, and you know, I mentioned this briefly, legal protections. The civil authority of Rome had a basic sense of legal justice that, though far from perfect, sought to provide a sense of equity. Now, here's, here's where we start getting a little bit more, it gets a little trickier, okay, with all of this. This is going to bring us into the second part about when we not obey the government. Let me mention this. There was within Rome a basic principle of justice uh, that inspired its laws and the ways that it sought to perform that justice among the citizens, among the people. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. Now, I've mentioned this to you before. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But there is, there is one of the oldest letters and examples we have of this. It's from the second century. It's by someone named Pliny. Pliny was a local ruler who was essentially having to deal with Christians. And the problem was is that these Christians were being turned in and they were being brought to him. And he wasn't really quite sure what to do with them. He's like, hey, they, they worship their God. They, they try to obey the laws or whatever. And then they go off and I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with them because one of the main issues with the Christians is that they would not however light a vote candle to the emperor in other words Rome had no problem with Christians worshiping Jesus they had no problem with that at all as long as they publicly acknowledged that the ultimate authority was Caesar was Rome if you acknowledge that, you can do whatever you want. It was a polytheistic society. They had all kinds of gods. They, you want to worship Jesus as God? Fine. But you have to acknowledge that Caesar is the ultimate authority. And a Christian wouldn't do that. And Pliny in this letter, when he's writing to the emperor Trajan, recognizes that and says, but they won't, uh, they won't uh, do this. They won't all give ultimate allegiance. And so the command was essentially that if they won't uh, acknowledge Caesar as the ultimate authority, they're to be put to death. But then he acknowledges and he tells Pliny, the Emperor Trajan, that you're not to seek them out. You're not to seek them out. If someone comes to you, that's fine, but you're not to go house to house looking for them. Obviously, conditions would change in Rome, but, but this was early on. And he, and he writes this, Trajan does. 
Uh, he says it is not impossible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. Any anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. What is the point of that? It's simply to illustrate this, that there was a kind of protection, there was a kind of justness, even within Roman law, that protected these early Christians and some of the most insane charges against them. We talked about some of those when we went through 1 Peter. Now again, this was far from perfect, and here is the tricky part. Here is a sense of justice that in one sense protects the Christians, and in another sense would be the same system that would be used to persecute them and to kill them. In other words, the way this always works out within the real experience of humanity is messy and can bring some confusion. How then were Christians to think of this kind of government that would put them to death? How would they use the just parts of this law for their advantage while at the same time knowing that they could succumb to its unrighteous aspects. Now we see an example of this also in the life of Paul. Unfortunately, I'm just going to have to mention this. But you remember when Paul went to Caesar, it was he appealed to Caesar after he was protected by the Roman centurion of a Jewish mob that wanted to tear him to pieces. The centurion came down there with his soldiers, he went into the mob, he protected Paul, he brought him up, allowed him to still give a speech, and then they protected Paul all the way throughout his journey to Rome to stand before Caesar, which was actually the Emperor Nero, who would eventually be the cause of his death. But Paul appealed even at this time and at other times to Roman law that would protect him and give him this kind of ability to continue his gospel ministry. Now again, as I already noted, eventually that same one, that same system would be for his demise and for his destruction. Yet even these conditions, the church was called to honor and to pray for leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, pray for your leaders. Pray for them that you might live a quiet and a peaceful life. And this can be seen even throughout the earliest centuries of the church. For example, just after the Roman persecutions of Nero, which were the first Roman persecutions, the first persecutions against the church were Jewish, and then this moved in, and then the church was largely seen as just a sect of Judaism, and actually protected under Roman law for that reason. But then eventually Christianity was seen to be distinct from Judaism, and it was at this point that it began to experience the persecution from the Roman government as a distinct religion. And in that case, there was the, the persecution first by Nero, many others that were followed. They weren't all emperor uh, uh, throughout the whole empire. Uh, some of them were scattered in particular areas, but there was the persecution of Nero. There was the soon coming at the end of the first century of persecution by an emperor named Domitian. And you say, how did the Christians respond to this? Let me just give you one example. We have an early letter by, called First Clement, written probably in the late century, 1st AD. It was written from Rome to the church at Corinth. In that letter, it includes this prayer. There's many things he says on government, but here's a prayer that a Christian leader in Rome in times of persecution said, we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name, that speaking of God, 
and to, our, and to our rulers and governors on earth. You, Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your majestic and inexpressible might, so that we, acknowledging the glory and honor that you have given them, may be subject to them, resisting your will and nothing. Grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government that you have given to them. You can see examples of that from the 2nd century, 3rd century, and 4th century on as well. Point is, that's, that's a recognition of what Paul is saying here. We recognize they are from God, that they are established by God. It's our will to subject ourselves to them. We recognize that they have benefits to humanity. They limit evil. They cause for human flourishing of the gospel. They have a role to play. And final reason, and this I'll just mention, it's necessary for a clear conscience. Look at verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sakes. Simply stated, that he means this. Our conscience in this way, our conscience in recognizing it is the will of God for us to be subject to these authorities. And so in order to keep a clear conscience before God, we have to live in accordance with that will and be subject to the human civil authorities. So we do it to keep a clear conscience. Now this brings up another issue, and this is what we're going to end on. Is this, the limits of obedience. The limits of obedience. And the limits of obedience are essentially, essentially this, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness are the limits of obedience. We are first grasp those first points, but then we are, we are necessarily, as the people of God, ultimately, inevitably, going to come into conflict with, conflict with that civil authority. It's inevitable that that's going to happen eventually in some way. And that's what many of the discussions for us are taking place even now. When would we disobey? One, when civil authority would legislate unrighteousness. When civil authority would legislate unrighteousness. Civil authority is a reflection, and the laws within a nation are a reflection of the values of that nation, the things that it holds important, right? And as much as those values are in line with God's will, with righteousness, then the laws will reflect that. In as much as a culture or a nation has values that are not in line with God's will, then the laws are going to reflect that, and then there's going to be a conflict between the Christian and the laws of the state. Now again, even within Romans, we can see that, and this gets a little bit closer to home for us. The very beginning of Romans, when he's explaining, and this, remember, this is the church that he's writing to, when he's explaining the gospel, he begins with the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he gives this list, and he says, part of God's judgment is that he does what? He gives them over. He repeats that statement throughout. He gives them over. And when he gives a nation over because they reject him, they reject his revelation in creation, they reject ultimately even uh, the revelation of God in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, but when they reject God, it says he gives them over. And what is going to be the result of him giving them over? Well, the very first thing we're very familiar with is going to be a kind of sexual perversion, a kind of sexual perversion, homosexuality. God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty of their error. Why? Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Remember, the further removed a nation is from an idea of a God who is the foundation, then the more they're going to move towards unrighteousness and the more we're going to come into conflict with them. And that's what we see. 
When a nation has been given over, the first you see is a kind of complicitness, a kind of agreement, even a kind of exalting of sexual perversion, which is, and the laws are going to reflect that. And so then you're going to have laws that want to enforce what? Killing a baby outside of the womb. Grotesquely removing a child from a woman's room late into pregnancy. Why? Because the mother doesn't want them. We're going to see laws that eliminate any kind of opposition to whatever moral agenda is overtaking the culture at the time. Right? The laws are going to reflect that. Right now, there's laws protecting, but soon those laws, as they already are being, are going to erode, and what's going to replace them are laws that protect what is unrighteous. This is nothing new. In Isaiah chapter 5, God, the prophet writing to God's own covenant people, says this, Woe to those, in verse 20 of chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And when that kind of substitution happens within the highest levels of civil authority, then we can expect that there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a problem. When a nation has been given over to sin, then those who have been saved from sin and oppose sin are going to be in a situation where they're in conflict with that authority. The list of sinful passions within this nation became increasingly the moral absolutes of the culture. So good for evil and evil for good became the moral absolutes. At this point, the law becomes a punisher of those who do good and a rewarder of those who do evil. The exact opposite of what he said in Romans 13. What is the right functioning of government? Again, we can think of abortion laws, the rising threat of the LGBTQI. I stands for intersexual. I don't quite remember even what that means. But Agenda to parental authority through sex education in schools, which is determined specifically, even written explicitly in California curriculum of sex education for as young as kindergarten. To undermine parental authority to correct what these children may have learned at home, it's stated that way in the curriculum. We're going to have laws that justify that, that are going to destroy the family through wanton, amoral sexual expression, which has no limits, which has the very determined political and moral agenda to destroy the family as any kind of subversive uh, unit of authority outside of the state. That's ultimately what's behind it. The feminist movement and the sexual revolution. These are the kind of things that we could expect to be attacking biblical Christianity. The labeling of any opposition as hate speech and punishable by law. No longer just ridicule, but punishable by law. And soon we will be faced with issues of hiring practices and restroom requirements for those who think gender is fluid. This is coming to the church. It's coming to the church. If it comes tomorrow, if it comes in 10 years or 100 years, who knows, I'm not a prophet. But it is coming to the church. And if that is the point where we have to then ask these questions of how do we apply righteousness in those conditions. And it's actually rather simple. For a Christian, we obey God rather than men. We obey God rather than men. We won't look at all these examples. We don't have time. Just a few I jotted down. Daniel 3, Daniel was told he can't pray, except to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel said, uh-uh. It was a set up a trap. He prays. 
uh, and they throw him in the lion's den. You had the worship of the statue. You had Shadrach, their Babylonian name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in. We're going to be thrown into the fire. He said, you tell us, king, do we obey you or God? Let me tell you, we're not obeying you, essentially. And he threw them in the fire. And, of course, in that case, God rescued them. That's clear. Acts chapter 5, the apostles were told no longer to preach in this name. And they said, don't do it. They said, look, is it better to obey God or obey man? They flogged them. They beat them. They sent them on the way. And they rejoiced that they could suffer for the sake of the cause of God. So that's clear. Now, here's what becomes more, less clear, or becomes less clear. Is when civil authority would prevent obedience to God. Now, this is closely related to the first point. The, the first point is pretty black and white. Don't worship or worship, worship uh, something other than Christ. The, the Roman uh, citizens felt that. Nope, we can't do it. We'll die. Legislate sin and totally embrace an unrighteous agenda or you'll be punished by law. Well, we'll be punished by law then. That's crystal clear. Then we get into some other areas, and this is where most of us know the discussion is now. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go too far into this. But what about, what about when a government says that you can't meet in your church without certain numbers because of public health safety, when there is plenty of evidence that would suggest that that may not be as clear as it's always presented? Then what do you do? Well, churches have to answer that question. One church, others have. They're not the only one, but because of their prominence, one church has answered that, Grace Community Church, and said, we are no longer going to abide by any of these regulations or recommendations of the state of California, which are not based on any real evidence, which are an infringement of First Amendment rights, and which the state has no authority to ultimately enforce for them as church. And so they made a statement, a public statement, and says we're not going to abide in any way, shape, or form, essentially, uh, by any of these regulations. Well, that, of course, among Christians, then creates a lot of conversation, doesn't it? Creates a lot of conversation. And the conversation is not about the theology. This is what I want to make clear. It's not about the theology of the lordship of Christ and that we obey God rather than man. That is not the issue. And we have to really understand that in the discussion. Every Christian who understands the authority of Scripture wholeheartedly understands that, absolutely agrees with that. The question becomes, how does that get applied in this particular circumstance? And some simply say, look, there are other ways that a church can minister to people even under those conditions and without such an absolute kind of defiance. Some say that it's maybe better to wait until there's a clearer issue that's more absolute and is not muddled with all of the misinformation and right information, wrong information, opposing information related to the health issues. That isn't so muddled with natural fears that people have, those kind of things. And the response to that decision was simply this, that each church should be allowed within these, these particular circumstances to make their own decision. In other words... We're in a cultural moment where while it will become clearer, black and white, down the road, it will be, be absolutely clear, this is right, this is wrong. We're kind of in a middle muddle ground in some ways now, because not every church is under the same situation. Not every church 
agrees with the same or has the same view of the medical information and so on and so forth. And you can have debates about that, and that's fine to do that. But the issue is, is that each church has to make that decision. Each church and each Christian individually has to make that decision. And we as Christians want to leave room for each one to do that, for each church to do that. And so what I would just want to say, at least publicly, is just a simple statement, uh, is that, one, we absolutely agree with the lordship of Christ, and we absolutely agree that there is a point where that has to be, that is the dividing line, and it's crystal clear. We also agree, say, that in certain situations, it's not always clear, even within Rome, while John was writing about Babylon as the great whore and the persecution was going to become, Clement was writing to his people saying, you need to submit and do the will. Clearly not when you have to sin against God, but this is what we need to do towards our government. So the point that simply needs to be made is that we, outside of crystal clear decisions that would be absolute sin against Christ, uh, we need to allow the freedom for churches to make their own decision. We need to allow that freedom. And we don't want to say, absolutely without having thought through it, a little thought through it carefully, to say that there's only one standard of righteousness and everything else is compromise. Right? There are some leaders, and we have to say this, right, it's the elephant in the room, who disagree with that decision. Not the theology of it. You have to understand that. Nobody's disagreeing with the theology of it, the application of it in this particular circumstance. That is not a decision of faithfulness or unfaithfulness to Christ. It's a decision of how to wisely apply that in this particular moment. Do you understand that? I really want to make that clear. And we need to allow that kind of freedom and a difference of opinion on, on some of these areas. The time will come where there will be no confusion where the decision to stand with Christ or against Christ is absolute, it's crystal clear, there's no debate. That time's coming, right? That will happen. We will have to make that decision. And so we want to be ready to do the right thing when it comes, when that time comes. Now, we don't have time. I'll just mention this, what I wanted to end with, because really what is behind all of this is the gospel. The ultimate sufferer of the unrighteousness of civil government was who? Christ. And yet he submitted to the unrighteous execution according to the will of God. You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from heaven, John 19.11. Therefore, the one who handed me over has the greater guilt. Paul said there was united against Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, all of the authorities to put to death Christ according to the predetermined plan of God, Acts chapter 4. So it is God's will at times, Christians will suffer ultimately because our head, our leader, our savior, our own God suffered for us at the hands of unrighteous men. And we ultimately will do that too, but our hope... Again, I'll just have to mention this as we well know that this kingdom is temporary. We need great wisdom. We need great courage. We need great help from our Lord to teach us how to navigate it well until that coming kingdom comes, his kingdom comes. But that is our hope that when his kingdom comes, it'll be a kingdom of righteousness and those decisions 
will be removed because the curse will be removed and our King of kings and Lord of lords who comes in the glory of the Father with all of the holy angels will establish his throne on earth and we will worship and serve him forever. Uh, I, I went a little over, so we're not going to do a closing song uh, today, John, if that's okay. Uh, uh, let me pray for us, though, and this will be our benediction. Father, thank you for your word, and, and we need your help, O oh God. We need your help to, to think clearly about the times that we live in. We need your help to be courageous when we are called for courage that is not naturally our own but it comes through your spirit working in us. And we pray that you would give us that courage. We thank you for those you've raised up to display that courage. Even in this case, we think of the elders and the leaders of this community church. And we ask that you would give them wisdom and that you would use that for good, their faithfulness to you and their obedience to you. We pray that as other churches navigate and how to wisely apply faithfulness to Christ in these uncertain times, that you would give them wisdom as well and help them to be faithful and use them for the advancement of the gospel and for the shepherding and the care of the people under those conditions. And in all things as well, our Father, I pray this, and we pray this together, that we would remember as easily as it is to get caught up into the affairs of state and while it does have its place, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not earthly. They're heavenly. And we take every thought obedience in, in obedience to Christ, captive in obedience to Christ. Help us to do that. Help us not to be distracted by so many good things but aren't the main thing. And the church's main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And particularly as we use social media, as we interact with friends, as we even navigate this in our own hearts, may our affections be kept by you, Holy Spirit, in your work in us in, the proper, in a proper order. Where Christ is clearly at the head, the gospel is our primary mission, is clearly the foundation, and that we would be witnesses of our great King who died and rose again for us and is soon coming. And in his name we pray, amen. Uh, may the Lord bless you, and uh, that's our benediction. So.